you would come with me in the word of God to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. It's good for me to be with you again this morning and I'm thankful to God for our friendship and for a chance to be here with you on the first Lord's Day of the year and that is a blessing and I pray that God would make uh, even this portion for us this morning a blessing in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. The word of God says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And let us pray pray together. Our great God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the Lord's Day and we pray that you would even make it a delight to us today in considering your word. We pray that you would make your word a blessing to us, young and old, and that you would minister to our hearts, both preacher and hearer alike. Please help us, our God. We confess our weakness. We confess our sin and our need of a shepherd, our need of light. And we pray that you would be to us that God that we need, that you would give us direction, that you would give us help even in this hour. And it's in Christ's name that we ask. Amen. Well, this morning we'll take up this one brief verse, another portrait in this hall of faith, and that of Noah. Noah is a um, prominent figure in the scriptures. He's familiar to all of us. Doubtless, if we asked each of the children here, they would be able to tell us something, even summarize the life of Noah. It's a familiar story to each one of us. It's really vivid in the Word of God when you read uh, those several chapters in the book of Genesis. It's a captivating account. You have a man and his boat and a great uh, event in the history of the world. Um, It's easy to see why it's popular for vacation Bible school, where you have such simple imagery uh, with the animals and Noah and his family. It's familiar, but it's a serious story, and we all know something of the reality, the gravity of the story of Noah. Uh, This is a man who lived through the end of the world as he knew it, and uh, where everyone on the face of the earth perished. Everyone died in their sin, save for Noah and his seven family members, and God preserved the animals on the ark. It It was cataclysmic, and so it should give us pause when we consider this story. It's not a cute child's tale. It's accessible for children, but it has weight. And it's also a strange story in that if you imagine yourself as a first-time reader of the Bible, not knowing anything, you might be surprised to find that uh, after chapter 1 with the creation of the world, just five chapters later, you have a catastrophic end to the world. It It is a strange lurch in the beginning of this uh, unfolding redemption that God writes about. 
and gives us in his word. And so it's curious, coming to the book of Hebrews, how the writer here summarizes, remembers the life of Noah in this one condensed sentence. And we can contrast it even with the portrait uh, just before of Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, which here is given about a paragraph. And in the book of Genesis, that whole story consists of just about two paragraphs. Noah is about a thousand years later, and it covers multiple pages, several chapters of the Bible, but here he's condensed to just one phrase. It's the divine cliff notes version of Noah, if you will. There's one thing that the writer centers on, and that will be our focus this morning, that uh, the one key fact in Noah's life, and that is his preparation. You see there in the center that Noah constructed an ark, or he prepared an ark. And so if, if you think that uh, you would summarize the story of Noah about that it's a man who built an ark, you'd be 100% correct. We have even the endorsement from the divine writer here. The story is about a man who really built an ark. It's history. It was a great, massive undertaking. Um, the ark was one and a half football fields long. It had the storage capacity of 480 modern uh, semi-trailers. And for a project like this, the scale of it in Noah's time, we could be curious to ask lots of questions. Where did he get the supplies to build this? Who helped him? How did he fund the project? Did he use cranes and, and primitive construction techniques and all of this? And we could speculate about a lot of that, but the writer wants us to see one important fact, the single most important resource that made this project possible. And can you guess what it is? It's faith. Noah could not accomplish the preparation of the ark by sheer force alone. No amount of money was sufficient to build it. It could only have been, excuse me, prepared by faith. It was indispensable. Faith is what made this possible. And so it would be worth asking the question, why is preparation the central fact of Noah's life? Why remember him for what he, for constructing? We could think in, in the uh, a popular sense of this, I wouldn't want to be remembered as a doomsday prepper, uh, one who just uh, stores up uh, lots of food and maybe armament and prepares for a time where it's the end of the world and I have a bunker and shelter. And those people in our day are, are reproached. They're seen as extremists and so forth. And the meaning of prepared here it has nothing of that reproach. This is a thoroughness. When it says that Noah prepared, it means that he furnished or equipped with everything that was necessary. And so we find uh, just two chapters back in Hebrews, the writer tells us of the priests who were ministering in the tabernacle. And this is what they did. They prepared everything necessary. They put oil on the lamps. They got the bread ready for the table of presence. They brought incense and all of these different things that were marked out for them in the law of God. They did it thoroughly and in detail. 
Well, the Genesis account supports this summary uh, view of Noah as one who prepared and who thoroughly did what God called him to. In Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 22, we find after all of God's instructions about specifically how to build the ark and everything that he should make ready, it says that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Again, in Genesis chapter 7, verse 5, it says, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, in uh, verse 15 through 16, it says that they all went into the ark with Noah, and those that entered went in as God had commanded him, commanded Noah. And then after the flood in Genesis 8, we're told that God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, that is you and your family. And it says, so Noah went out, he and his family. He did exactly what God told him to do. He did it in fine detail. And so this thoroughness is a central feature of the portrait here in in Hebrews 11. All that God called him to do in order to prepare for the coming flood, he did. And so we see that this man of faith did everything necessary to prepare for salvation. There are three aspects, though, of Noah's preparations that will add dimension to understand that this was a faith-based undertaking. And so the writer presents us with these these three things that I've grouped um, under the headings, the grounds of of Noah's preparation, the spirit of his preparation, and then finally, the fruit of his preparation. And so first, we'll take up the grounds of that preparation. You see there, the writer says that it was being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. These were the grounds, the warning of God. Whether it was by a dream or an audible voice, a a, a theophany, an appearance, by God. We don't know, but we know clearly God revealed, he spoke to Noah and told him of this this event that was about to happen. When Noah was 480 years old, he had a life-changing experience. And it was uh, this revelation from God that jump-started the project and that justified all of the expense and the labor and the time that would that it would require. This is just like in the story of the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. We have the Magi who present their gifts. And then it says, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They were warned in a dream, just like Noah was warned about the great wickedness in the world and that God had determined to bring judgment upon the earth. And this warning required faith. We know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And it took faith to believe and understand this warning from God. Why? Because the warning was about judgment, which would come in the form of water, a flood. And when that first raindrop fell to to bring the flood, No one had ever seen a raindrop before. They wouldn't have known what it was 
that water fell from the sky. This would be a new thing. It's unlikely that, um, that they knew anything of floods in the earth. There were bodies of water, to be sure, but there's no evidence that Noah lived anywhere close to a significant body of water. And so it would have been a strange thing. It would have been an unseen reality, even just in the terms of God's judgment. What did the world know of God's judgment to this point? We have Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden. God brings a flaming sword to guard it. Um, he deals with Cain in the murder of his brother. But up until this point, nothing in the, the scale at all of God's judgment bringing a worldwide destruction was known at all. It required faith and it seemed absurd, certainly, to undertake such a project as this. We're not told of any reproach, any ridicule, any persecution that Noah sustained, but many great writers have, have suspected it because it would be natural. How could you not make fun of someone who is putting on scuba gear in the middle of the desert? There's nothing around. There, there's no reason to construct such a, a vessel as this in the middle of nowhere to put your life's work into this uh, because to the, to the eye, there was no danger. There was no need. And so certainly he could have suffered um, ridicule for this, but no matter what the, the opinion of man was, in Noah's eyes, the opinion of God outweighed any of that. He was a man of faith and he believed God and he prepared. And these were the grounds of his preparation, the word of God. Secondly, the spirit of his preparations. We are told that it was in reverent fear that Noah constructed an ark. So what was it that for probably 75 years of this construction period, what was it that got Noah out of bed in the morning and made him press on day after day to build and to persist? He was not reluctantly slogging away at this project. He was motivated by reverent fear. When God spoke to him, there was gravity in it. It wasn't nonchalant, his response. When God spoke, Noah trembled. And the God who is not obligated to tolerate our sins made an impact on him. He was meticulous. He was conscientious, conscientious in his care. He didn't just build. He wasn't just diligent to prepare. There was an all-consuming nature to it because of this motivation. There was a devotion, a deep uh, investment in this project because it was God who, had, uh, who was motivating him with this reverent fear. The sober warning produced scrupulous working. And it, it's this same reverence that characterizes Simeon in Luke chapter 2, where we're told there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And what was the central fact about Simeon? What characterized him? This man was righteous and devout. That's our word, devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It is, in fact, the same reverence that characterizes Jesus' prayers 
In uh, Hebrews chapter 5, we read that Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying. And why was he heard? He was heard because of his piety. It's the same word, his godly fear. And so Noah had this diligence combined with a spirit of reverence, this careful, thorough, conscientious working, and he prepared the ark. And so if we just consider at this point the example of Noah, he shows us how we ought to rightly receive the word of God, does he not? With reverence and obedience. It's a, a wonder that God speaks. As I said, God is not obligated to tolerate our sins. He's not obligated to reveal his will to us, to guide us, direct us, to provide seed for the birds every day, and yet he does. He didn't have to reveal this warning to Noah. He could have brought the flood like a thief in the night. He could have um, saved Noah and his family through miraculous means, just raptured them off the earth, covered the earth in a flood, washed everyone away, and then brought them back. He didn't have to go through these means He doesn't have to reveal his holy and eternal will. No one gives counsel to God, and he's not obligated to reveal his counsel to any of us. But God spoke. And what's more, God sent Noah to speak. He was a preacher of righteousness to reveal this warning to others, to preach to his neighbors, and to call them to repentance, no doubt. God gave gracious instructions even for how Noah and his family could be saved. Not only I'm bring, I've had it with sin and I'm bringing my justice to bear, but I will preserve you and your family and here is what you must do. He was patient in judgment. And how often can we sit unaffected when we hear the word of God? How many ways there are to receive the word of God wrongly with an unprepared heart? So many times it's easy sitting in the, in the chairs to think, well, I hope so-and-so is listening. Um, we neglect application to our own souls. Maybe it's familiar material and we grow tired of it. Maybe it's difficult material and we don't bother with it and we tune it out. But brethren, let us press on to know the Lord, to diligently study his word, to plow up our own hearts even before we come here On the Lord's Day, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, prepare our hearts so that we might have good soil to receive the seed of God's word, so that we may tremble, so that we would be rightly motivated like Noah with reverent fear. And may we labor to have a right conception of God as one who is a consuming fire. He is holy. He has almighty power even to bring the world to an end in just a blink of an eye. Let us listen with expectation. Many times we might be praying throughout the week that God would give us direction, that he would give us an assurance of that we are his, that we've been adopted as his. And on the Lord's Day, God especially promises to be with his people. And it could be that in the preaching of God's word, God is bringing you the answer to your prayers. 
that you would hear exactly what you needed to hear this day and realize how much dullness of heart is a threat to receiving God's word rightly. Pray for a heart like Noah that readily receives, whether it is good or bad, cursing or blessing, the man of faith receives both promises and threatenings from God and receives it with reverence. And so maybe listen with humility. Maybe listen with a submissive heart, a receptive heart to heed both the warnings and wisdom of God. This was the spirit of Noah's preparations. He received the word of God with reverence and godly fear. Third, then, let's consider the fruit. And the writer highlights three fruits specifically uh, that these preparations yielded. Noah's preparations didn't come to nothing. They were richly rewarded by God. And the first is that his household was saved. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And so this first fruit is um, really also the central purpose of his preparations, wasn't it? I mean, Noah wanted to be saved himself. He wanted to avoid the flood, but he loved his family and the ark was the means of saving them. And so he did it. He accomplished the purpose for which he was laboring, not only to obey God, but that his family would be spared from destruction. And so notice the, the means of his family's salvation. Noah's family was only spared because the head of household worked hard, even for decades, to again do everything necessary for salvation. Seven precious souls, his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives were saved. And if Noah hadn't built the ark, they would not have been saved. They would have been wiped out along with everyone else. These were the means that God provided for them uh, to, to uh, have shelter from the storm. And here was a father who was directed by God's word, motivated by the fear of the Lord, and who labored diligently that his family might be saved. And so if we look at this with a spiritual eye, we can see a general principle for heads of households, for husbands, for fathers. It's an example for us to follow, that we might labor, that our wives, that our children might be found safe in the coming day of judgment. Are we, as heads of household, doing everything possible to thoroughly furnish our families with gospel truth? How are you leading your family to Christ? How are you preparing them for eternity? May our secret prayers continue. May our family devotions be, be a steady. May our private devotions be warm. May we teach them wisdom. May we bring them to church where they might hear the word of God. These are the means that God has given, and, and there are others. But may we press on in this work. We can take hold of these means and do everything possible to labor, even as Paul wrote, that Christ may be formed in our family. We know that God is sovereign, but he uses means to bring the gospel to our children. And so may we abide in them. May we not grow weary. 
but may our, even our life be a testimony that compels them to come with us, to walk in our footsteps and to follow Christ. And may we be free from hypocrisy. You know, we think of um, the ark as defining Noah's life, and that's certainly true, even as we have here in, in the divine summary. Uh, we think the ark defines his life just as the cross defines Christ. But it was the people that they saved that were near and dear to them. The ark and the cross were only the means of saving. Christ didn't love the cross. In fact, he despised it. He prayed uh, against it to avoid it, if you will. He loved his people. And so he willingly lifted up uh, that wooden beam upon his back. He willingly suffered, uh, carrying it to the place of the skull. He hung and died to save his people. It was for the joy set before him of being with his people, uh, saving his people that motivated him and not the not love of the cross. It was the reward of his sufferings to save his household, if you will, all the, the sons of God. And so here we have that fruit of Noah's labors that his household was saved. The second fruit is that the world is condemned. Now, we don't normally think of uh, condemnation as a good fruit. Um, we, we ought not go around to um, uh, preach condemnation to people, even as Jesus said, he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Uh, we ought to love our neighbor, and sometimes that means saying hard things. But it's not as if uh, Noah is being remembered for being hard on his neighbors or something like that. What does it mean that by his preparations, the world was condemned? He condemned the world. Well, I'd say Noah was a diamond on black. He was one who stood out and shined brightly in the midst of his crooked and perverse generation. He was born into uh, a time where it was exceedingly sinful. Sin was like a virus, if you will, if you will, of pandemic proportions it was just growing and growing and spreading and God sees all this evil and he's grieved and he's furious and yet in all of the avalanche of evil in his time we find Genesis 6 8 where we're told but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord so he stood out even if you will to God his pious life was such a contrast to the ungodly in his day, that it demonstrated the utter utter wickedness, emptiness, and backwardness of the world with its agendas and and values. So Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but his boat was a sermon in its own right. And for 120 years, it testified against the world. His preparations warned of judgment to come. It urged them to repent. It pointed to God's salvation, the provision of a way out. And yet, despite its enormous size, it never seemed to have an impact. And no one was ever moved to repent. And everyone perished. So, with Noah's reverence and his obedience, it testified to the utter emptiness of 
the wicked. All of their pleasures perished. Whatever they were hoping for, whatever they put their stock in, it died. All their desires died. Their accomplishments came to ruin and meant nothing. Everything they'd ever lived for was destroyed, and only Noah's life was vindicated. Only his legacy lived on. It's like what Jesus said um, to... uh, uh, Jesus said that a, a cra- in, the, in the last day, there'll be a crowd of Ninevites joined with the queen of the south, and they are going to shout condemnation at the final judgment. They will condemn a whole generation who did not repent when Jesus preached and brought signs. The Ninevites repented when, when Jonah brought the word of, of warning, and they will condemn those who turned away and were unaffected and did not receive the word of God with reverence. This is how Noah's diligent preparations uh, brought conviction and culpability and did condemn the world. The third fruit of Noah's preparations were that he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the longest lasting fruit of Noah's faith. The preacher of righteousness now becomes an heir of righteousness. And perhaps uh, you know or could think of the inheritance that comes through blood. Whether it's a grandfather who lives, leaves a trust fund for his grandchildren or a father who passes down a business to his son. You know something of the inheritance that comes through blood. But this is the faith kind. It only comes through faith. And just as Jesus said, he gives the right to become children of God to uh, whoever believes in him, this inheritance came by faith. The fruit of his work was salvation, in other words. It was not just safe passage through the flood and through the destruction of the world. It was rest, eternal rest in God. It wasn't just that he was saved from a deluge of water, but from divine wrath, ultimately and eternally. He was only saved uh, for a time on that boat, but he was saved eternally as God was pleased to save him through a lively and obedient faith. We could think of near contrasts in the, uh, that the writer of Hebrew brings Hebrews brings um, Esau, for instance, he had no faith. He was godless, he was immoral, and he only inherits regret and bitterness. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are all fellow heirs of the promise. They inherited the city of God. That is, again, God's eternal rest and salvation. And so this was the reward for his work. The third fruit that he would uh, become a child of God, if you will, the assurance of adoption that he would receive in eternity a great inheritance from God. And so these these are the three fruits of Noah's working as he uh, diligently constructed this ark by faith. And so we could say in summary, Noah is an example to us of diligent faith. It's faith that was uh, grounded in God's word, motivated by reverent devotion to God, 
and yielding abundant fruit. It was diligence in keeping God's commandments, diligence in doing exactly what God had called him to do, and in preparing for judgment. And so what shall we say to these things? What should we be thinking with this example of Noah at the top of the year here in 2023? Well, I have just two points of applications. And the first is to flee from the wrath to come. Noah prepared for coming judgment, and his example urges us to do the same. Brethren, it seems that Christ has delayed, and he has not come for another year. 2022 has come and gone, and we are still here, still waiting for the arrival of our Savior. And he could choose to come on this first day in 2023. He could come next week. He could delay another 2,000 years. But the command for us is to be ready. And so I say to you today, be ready for the coming day of judgment. It's urgent that we are ready. In Noah's day, there was a clock that was ticking down as God's patience ran out. And he determined this was the day that he'll bring the first raindrop This was the day that Noah and his family must be in the ark and I must shut them in, otherwise they will perish in the flood of of his wrath. And it's urgent today to do everything necessary to be ready. If there was a Category 5 hurricane approaching, or I forgot to ask our brother what the equivalent in blizzard terms would be for a category five hurricanes but if there was a great snowstorm coming you'd take shelter you'd get ready if you were if you believed and you were convinced that there was imminent economic collapse you would get ready you'd start stockpiling supplies and moving your investments and whatever you needed to do and so what are you doing to get ready for the approaching judgment unbeliever how will you pay for your mountain of debt how will you stand before a thrice holy God who takes those who are lukewarm and spews them out of his mouth. The flood in Noah's day was only a fraction of what God is capable of. The blizzard that we know of in Buffalo is but a tiny fraction of what God is capable of. He can bring not just a snowstorm to blanket a whole city so no one can move, But he can flood the world with his wrath such that no one can avoid it. No one can run and find shelter. And that day of judgment will come like a thief in the night when no one is looking for it. When you least expect it, he'll rain fire from heaven and that will be the end. And you must take shelter in Christ if you are to survive the coming storm. There's only one place of safety from the tsunami of God's anger against sin. There's only one ark. There's only one Christ. Adam sinned, and by his sin, he plunged the whole world into sin, all of mankind. And it was as if he, he built a boat and took all of us, loaded us all on board, and sailed it right over a waterfall, and we all died. That's what Adam's sin did. In him, we all died, Noah actually built a ship, 
He obeyed God and built an ark of wood, and he brought his family, those seven souls, safely through the storm of God's wrath against sin. And likewise, Jesus obeyed his Father, and he was nailed to a wooden cross to be the ark that brought us safely through the storm of God's judgment. Who else, like Noah, lived by faith and submission to all God's holy will? Who else was blameless in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Whose life was characterized by scrupulous, even perfect adherence to God's law in letter and in deed, in word and in spirit? And by his, by his own righteousness furnished everything necessary for salvation. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Noah is not just an example for us to follow but he's a type of our Savior. And only those who are safe in him can ride out the coming storm of judgment. And so flee to him. Prepare today. If you are not ready to sustain a flood of judgment upon you, then make ready. There is a place that you can flee. The door is open. And if this day you hear God's voice, then do not harden your heart. But go while there is mercy and flee from the wrath to come. But then secondly, we need to follow Noah's example of diligence and prepare even as a believer. It's true as the, as the Hebrew writer says that uh, how shall we escape if, if every transgression and disobedience receives a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? But it's also true that we must be diligent as believers. We think of diligence uh, naturally just in our jobs, uh, in the workplace, working heartily as unto the Lord, not slogging through it, but putting your best effort ahead, not just as a people pleaser, but to the glory of God, excelling in everything that you do, not cutting corners, um, going the extra mile. And we think of, of things like Proverbs 10 that says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And you know, if, if Proverbs 10.4 is true in the business world, then how much more is it true in the spiritual world? Proverbs is a book of a of a father telling his son not just how to be successful in business or how to make it in the world, it's how to be right before God, how to live before him in righteousness. And so if it's true in the business world, it's certainly true in the spiritual realm. Invest in your spiritual wellness. Redeem the time. Because again, brethren, maybe you're seeing a, a stormy economic forecast on the horizon. Um, Maybe you think that's what's ahead, whether a recession or whatever else. And we ought to rightly prepare for that and, and do what we think is wise and necessary if that's the case. But how are you preparing daily, diligently for eternity? What are you doing daily for your soul? Yes, we ought to work heartily for the Lord Jesus Christ while we're at work. But we also should work hard at being a Christian Lazy Christians will not receive many blessings that diligent Christians will receive in Christ. And what's worse, this entire book 
of Hebrews is a warning to those who are not being diligent, who are are limp in their faith, and they are neglecting the things of God. We see in Hebrews 2, the writer says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In chapter 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. These are not unbelievers. They are those who profess the Lord Jesus Christ and have been following him and have been met with challenges to their faith. And they're being urged, lest there be any unbelief in them. They're warned of the the unbelief of days of old. And, And... Exhorted, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, the disobedience of unbelief in the wilderness. And so it's imperative because, as he says, some have become dull of hearing. Some ought to be teachers by this time and yet are still immature and need to be taught themselves. It is urgent that in the Christian life we not put on the cruise control and sit back and and wait for the end. 2 Peter 1 has ministered to my heart. 2 Peter 1, verse 5 through 7, that maybe you, you know, where he says, for this very reason, make every effort. God has done everything to give you everything you need for life and godliness. God has provided but make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. My friends, who among us can say that we have the, the warmth and the intimacy and the kindness and the closeness that we even long to have with our brethren here at, in Albany? Who among us can say that we have attained to uh, the, the heights of self-control that we ought to have in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our ambitions and desires? Who can say that our faith is completely furnished with all the virtue that we need and we can, we're just good to go? Who, who among us would say that we have the knowledge that we need? To, for, for life's coming storms. Who among us can say we know what we ought to about God, have a right conception about God in all of Christ's personhood, in that hypostatic union with God and man? Who among us has searched the scriptures out to know what we can of our Savior? Let us press on and like Noah, like he built the ark, may we have a thoroughly furnished faith in every aspect of life. Noah was diligent in all that pertained to salvation. And may we follow his example. Maybe 2023, here at the the beginning of the year, is a good opportunity to assess how are we doing with our faith? Are we living by faith? And what does that look like? Remember the example of Noah in this condensed, compact uh, form. Are we receiving the word? with reverence and godly fear, whether it's on the Lord's Day, in private devotions. God, may you penetrate our hearts. May we pour out our hearts before you. Can we say that 
that what we do throughout the week is grounded in the Word of God? Are we just doing what we need to to survive? Are we just doing the next thing so that we don't think about what's going on in the world? Or can we point to God's Word and say, this is why I do what I do? Are you doing all that God has called you to and laboring daily with endurance, not in drudgery, but with joy? Brethren, drudgery is unbelief. We only have highlights from Noah's life where we see these heights of God's revelation and building the ark. The ark took 75 years to construct. And every day Noah was building up calluses on his hands and, and sweating and and uh, pounding pegs into wood and all that he was doing. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't a celebrity life. It was decades of hard work. And the hope for, for us, if we find ourselves in monotony, if you started out with your career and you were excited and now uh, not so much and you're wondering, what do I do here? The first step for monotonous work is not leaving it, but believing in it. And continuing on with faith. It is faith that sustained Noah through this great endeavor. Are you providing for your family? Living by faith at home as husbands, as fathers, and even beyond. Are we laboring to spiritually nurture our family? I know that you are. And so press on. Not only to physically provide and protect, but to spiritually nurture them. Are you living contrary to the world? If someone looks at your life and my life, is there a real difference? Is there a contrast in what the world lives for and what you live for? Do you have good deeds that are heaping burning coals on your enemies' heads? Does your life speak of conviction, of holiness, of purpose, of reverence like Noah's did? May we live by faith in hoping for an eternal inheritance. Is your treasure in heaven? Are you laboring not to be rewarded with rest and with pleasure here in this life, but knowing that it is to come in the next age when we see the world's wickedness and there is great perversion and crookedness in our day. But when we see that, we can be so easily embittered we can throw up our hands in defeat and just seemingly wait for the end to come. We can be discontent, but we ought to take what God's given us to do and to do it with all our might and labor in faith, believing that if I occupy the place that God has put me and if I invest in the kingdom, I can be assured that God will multiply my work and he'll multiply fruits and bring an eternal reward. And so press on in faith, believing that God will bless it. It's a new year, and may we be resolved. I don't like New Year's resolutions, not just in, not in the, uh, the concept of it, but I don't, I don't make them. But may we be resolved, brethren, to press on in faith with diligence, even after the example of Noah, to get to heaven Salvation is not a, a ticket to heaven. Salvation is a savior to follow. And if you follow hard after him, you will be saved. This is what the life of faith looks like. 
It's working heartily unto the Lord in everything that we do as a Christian. It is grounded in the word of God. It's in the spirit of reverence, in holiness, in godly fear. And it bears fruit. And so apply all diligence and patience in the exercise of your faith. And I'll end just with this in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 9. The writer says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. He will not despise you. He will not turn away from you or forget you in the day of his wrath. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, even as Noah. Brethren, do not be sluggish. We live in a day of carelessness, of spiritual deadness, and may we not fall into the same patterns. We have every reason to be motivated. We have every reason to run for the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished all that is necessary for salvation. He's transformed you. He's renewed you. I know that he has. And he's given you a desire to see heaven. And may each one of you be prepared for that day, that it would not be a day of wrath and judgment and misery for you, but that you may enter in to the peace and the rest of your master and your God. God has been gracious, and he's given us this example of Noah that we ought to follow. And so look Look to Noah's Savior. Look to the greater than Noah and find rest, find energies even to press on toward heaven. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that you would water the seed that's been sown and that you would enable every one of us to have a greater glimpse of our Savior and that we would have reverence before you. Motivate us with godly fear so that in that day we may be ready, that we may sing praises and not call out in judgment. We pray that you would work in a way that only you can work, that you would save, that you would help us, that you'd be merciful in Jesus' name. Amen.